it doesn't matter whether you're watching the animated one or the new remake. The Lion King is one of the most epic opening sequences of probably any movie ever, right? You have that sunrise over the African savanna, that song that I have no idea how to sing, but everyone loves, right, starts playing. You see all the different animals running up and gathering around Pride Rock, and then Rafiki, the monkey, comes carrying Simba up and holds him over, and all the animals bow down, and it's punctuated with that great big drum, and the Lion King comes across the screen, right? It is just epic, and it's so much fun. And and the, the new remake, of course, is this photorealistic version of it. And so it's kind of, it's beautiful. It's this cross between a BBC Planet Earth documentary and a Disney musical. I mean, it's just fantastic. So if you don't have anything to do this week, go see that. It's great. But, but ultimately, if you know the story of The Lion King, it's not just about Mufasa, the king, voiced by James Earl Jones. It's not just about his newborn son, Simba. But it's also about Scar, right? His plotting brother who teams up with the hyenas to overthrow the Lion Kingdom and take his own place as the king. And it's also a story about Simba's coming of age and the call for him to remember who he really is. You know, is he a nobody who just ran away to the jungle? Or is he the son of of a king, with a destiny, and a calling on his life, right? So it may be a movie with lions and zebras, with hyenas and warthogs, but it's got some pretty powerful stuff in there, right? It is a movie about identity and about power, right? And the way that these two things themes come together is they form this central question, who is going to rule? Who is going to be on the throne? Who is going to reign, right? And this question is a central question for us all, right? Just a couple of months ago, there was another big event in film when the wildly popular show Game of Thrones came to a controversial ending. Now, I have to admit, I have seen exactly zero episodes of Game of Thrones. And from what I know about it, it's far more racy than I'd like to see. But as I understand, the ending of the show was so controversial because of who ended up on the throne, right? And people were up in arms over whether this whole show that they had poured so much of their life into watching had ended the right way or not, right? Over that question, who is going to rule? And it's not just movies and TV shows that that ask this question, right? You can turn on the news any day and see politicians fighting over this question. Who is going to rule, right? You pull up Facebook and you see memes and posts about it. If you're daring enough, you venture into the comments section, right? And people are fighting over who's going to rule. This is the question, that, that we all wonder. And, and really, that question lies at the heart of our day-to-day life as we decide how to spend our time, how to spend our money. It sits at the heart of many of our own conflicts and struggles. Who is going to rule? 
So as we continue our way through Psalms, we'll be in Psalm 2 today. So if you have a Bible, you can open up there, Psalm chapter 2. And this psalm tackles the very same question. It's a royal psalm. It's filled with the struggle for power, the question of identity. And at its core, it asks, who is going to rule? So let's read it now. Psalm 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Psalms and thank you for being the one who is good and who rules. God, I ask that as we consider the words of this Psalm, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I mentioned earlier that this psalm is a royal psalm, and it's likely that it's a song that would have been sung at the coronation of a king in Israel, right? It may have even been sung by the king during that ceremony as he was crowned. And and so this psalm has four different scenes that it kind of walks us through. Each one is three verses. So verses one through three, we see the earthly kings. Right? And then in verses four through six, we get a glimpse of the heavenly king. And in verses seven through nine, we see the anointed king. And finally, in verses 10 through 12, we look back toward the earthly kings and we see this call to action. So, so let's walk through these four scenes together and keep asking that question. Who's going to rule? So back to the beginning, the psalm opens with this scene of the earthly kings. They're conspiring, they're plotting, they're rising up, they're banding together. Essentially, they're staging a coup against God and a war 
against God's people. So historically, the coronation of a king, if you know your history, is a time that is ripe for political turmoil, right? The change in leadership, that this is a time when it's just perfect to try to overthrow dynasties, to try to change the ruling regimes. So, so if this is a song that was sung in the context of, of a new king being crowned, then these opening lines actually help to protect and proclaim the legitimacy of the newly crowned king and, and kind of pronounce illegitimacy to anyone else who might be conspiring and plotting against this new king. But, but I think more than just proclaiming political protection over this new king, the opening lines of this psalm show us something that's really true about the world. And that is that there will often be challenges for those who seek to follow God. This opening scene shows us that the powers of this world often band together against God and against God's people, right? We often find ourselves in situations where there's conflict and community, where we're being asked to do something maybe morally questionable in our life or in our jobs, where we're personally tempted toward some kind of sin, where our faith is questioned or challenged or maybe just dismissed outright. And none of this should really surprise us because the powers of this world often take their stand against God and against God's people. Sometimes, to put it another way, when you faithfully follow God, you end up on a cross. You see, the word in verse 2, anointed, is the Hebrew word mashiach, which is where we get our word Messiah. In Greek, it's the word Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. So, so last week, I mentioned that the Psalms were the worship book of the early church. And we actually see this happen in Acts chapter 4. All right, Peter and John spent the night in prison for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And after they are released, they gather together with the rest of the church and they sing Psalm 2 together. In Acts chapter 4, they sing this. They, they say, the kings of the earth rise up against the Lord and his anointed one. And they go on to say, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. You see, if we faithfully follow God, we often will run into challenges. And that should not be a surprise to us because there are all kinds of conspiring and plotting that are going on all around us. But if we're honest, we have to admit that we're often on the side of conspiring and plotting. We spend a lot of our own time plotting, don't we? You know, our culture is one of individualism, and autonomy, 
right? The answer to the question, who's going to rule, is you. You're going to rule. You rule your life. You're in charge of your destiny. And, and we've bought right into that, right? So there are these mottos, haters going to hate, you do you, right? And these lead us to believe that if anyone criticizes us or asks something from us, then they must be an imposition. And certainly God is an imposition, right? So we, like the kings of this psalm, end up seeing God as nothing but chains and shackles to be thrown off so that we can truly be free, autonomous individuals, right? This is the myth that we live in. And we end up plotting and conspiring as well. But that leads us right into the next scene. These following verses, beginning in verse 4, the view shifts from earthly kings to the heavenly king. And how does God respond to this coup, right, being staged against him? How does he respond to this attitude of individualism and autonomy? Verse 4 reads, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them, right? The Lord looks down at rulers of the earth and he sees them kind of pumping themselves up, saying, all right, we're going to overthrow God. And he laughs. You know, oh, that little rebellious streak in them, that's kind of cute. You know, he looks and he laughs. Because are you really going to overthrow God? But then he shifts. And his, his attitude kind of changes in verse 5. It goes on to say, he rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath. Because it, it's sort of funny. It's laughable to think that we might overthrow God. But it is absolutely foolish for us to think that we could rule our own lives. So God gets serious. He gets a little more serious about this because he knows that if we try to rule ourselves, we're only going to wreck ourselves. We were made as worshipers. So no matter what we do, we will always be worshiping something. So if we throw off God, then we'll end up worshiping all kinds of other things, and we will end up being ruled by all kinds of other things. Maybe it's money. So we devote ourselves to working hard in order to have it, or maybe devote ourselves to cheating others out of it. Maybe the one we worship is status, right? So we devote ourselves to image management, make sure that everyone sees what we want them to see. And we define ourselves by relationships that we have, by the positions that we are in. Or maybe we really do seek to rule ourselves. And so we devote ourselves to pride. And we push everyone and everything else away and are left alone with a barren life. You see, we really aren't able to sit on the throne. And if we think we can, we're only fooling ourselves. If we try to rule ourselves, 
we will wreck ourselves. God knows this foolishness, and he also knows the danger of it. So he laughs and he warns. And then he says in verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy hill. And that leads us right into the third scene of the psalm. We move from the earthly kings to the heavenly king and now to the anointed king. Beginning in verse 7. And these verses are that king's words as he recounts what God has said to him. The king says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So now, again, historically, in Israel's coronation ceremony, these words would have been a promise of faithfulness and provision between God and this new king. This was a mutual commitment that God would be faithful to and provide for the new king and that the new king will remain faithful to God. But if you have read the book of Kings, well, then you know that that's not usually how things go, right? King after king after king abandons God, turns away from him, runs from him, and it's It's not only the kings of other nations that are plotting against God, but even Israel's own kings begin abandoning God. And that ends up leading to all kinds of turmoil for Israel and ultimately their exile and occupation. But even with all of Israel's faithlessness, God still remains faithful. Where else have you heard words like these? You are my son. Where else do we hear these? Jesus Christ, God's anointed one, comes to the earth, and at his baptism, God's voice sounds from the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are my son. I am your father. Right? God is faithful to continue bringing this about. And then there's that promise that follows about receiving the nations as an inheritance, right? And right after Jesus' baptism, he heads out into the wilderness where he is tempted, and one of the temptations that Satan brings to him is this one. Satan says, bow down before me, and I will give you all of these kingdoms. But Jesus said no. Not only to remain faithful to his father, but also because he knew that they had already been promised to him, and he trusted that his father was faithful. So back to that question, who's going to rule? Who sits on the throne? 
Well, the answer is Jesus, right? And here's what I love about it. Because kings of the earth are conspiring, they're plotting, they rise up, they fight. We all struggle for power. We kind of assume our own autonomy. But then there's Jesus. He is the only one who didn't play the game of thrones. And that's why he is the one who sits on the throne. That's why he is the one worthy to sit on the throne. Instead of fighting for power and flexing his authority, he gave it up. In Philippians, it says he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most shameful kind of death. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and at his name every knee and every nation bows in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the one who rules. He's the only one who can be trusted to rule over the world and over our own lives. Because when Jesus rules, he doesn't make a wreck. He actually makes redemption. So with this confidence in the rule of God's anointed one, we finally arrive at the last scene of this psalm. And just like the psalm from last week, we see both warning and blessing. So verses 10 through 12 say, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in this last section, we see a few things that we are called to as we live under the rule and reign of Christ. The first one is to serve the Lord, right? This is an invitation to stop playing the game of thrones with our own life and to submit to the Lord. Now, now that word submit is a dirty word in our culture, right? I mean, in a, in a world of individualism and autonomy, submission is the last thing you want to hear. But I love the way that Richard Foster describes submission. He says, Submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. That burden is the root of so much exhaustion, bitterness, burnout, broken relationships. It really is a burden to always have to get your own way. And a lot of people devote their lives to it. 
But when we realize what a terrible burden that it is, it gives us pause to actually consider the opening question of the psalm. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? Why do we live in such a way that leads to our burnout? All for futility. See, the invitation to serve is to freely submit to the Lord and take up his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light. The other invitation we see is to celebrate. And this is an invitation to turn our hearts toward Jesus in worship. Like I said, we will always be worshiping something. The question is whether the one we worship leads to life or leads to death. That phrase, kiss the sun, is a sign of honor, to honor the Son of God. But when we worship all kinds of other things, it goes on to say that that way will lead to destruction. So the call is to serve and to celebrate, and ultimately our service and our celebration is to be marked by fear and trembling, right? Paul was probably referencing this psalm when he writes in Philippians 2 to work work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That fear and trembling runs completely counter to the individualism and autonomy that we've been talking about this morning. It's a picture of what it means to live in a way that's honest about our own vulnerability. To live in a way that is honest about the fact that we are unable to rule our own life without wrecking it. And When we're honest about that, when we actually enter into that vulnerability, it it can lead to a good bit of fear and trembling. But thank goodness, that is not where the psalm ends. The very last line, the psalm ends the very same way the first psalm began, with blessing. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is ultimately the call of this psalm, to take refuge in God. Now, these first two psalms kind of go together, right? That first one opens with a blessing. The second one closes with a blessing. And together, they actually show us the shape of our life in God. In that first psalm, we see blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, whose delight is in the word of God. And in this one, we see blessed are all who take refuge in the Son of God. You see, this is what we are called to in our faith. We are shaped and formed by the word of God as it is written and the word of God as it was lived in the person of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, 
as we continue journeying through the book of Psalms together, you know, last week I talked a bit about how we can get songs stuck in our head. And my hope is that maybe as we read these Psalms, that they'll get stuck in our heads and we'll find ourselves thinking them, meditating on them, singing them. But the goal is not ultimately just to get the Psalms into us, but to get us into God, to take refuge in him. If the Psalms are in our head, that's a good place to start. But I hope that as we continue, that we might find ourselves all the more in him. May it be so. Amen.